0: Hi, I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky, and I work with the Jesuits in Washington, D.C. Every minute, 24 people are forced to leave their homes because of war, persecution, or violence. Experts estimate that there are more people who have been forced to flee their homes due to conflict than at any other point since World War II. We are in the midst of a global refugee crisis. In over 50 countries around the world where the crisis is the worst, the Jesuits are there. Jesuit Refugee Service, which was founded in 1980 by then-Jesuit Superior General Pedro Arupe, serves over 640,000 people each year. June 20th is World Refugee Day, which is celebrated annually to lift up refugees and raise awareness of the challenges they face. I sat down recently with Julia McPherson, the Director of Advocacy and Operations for Jesuit Refugee Service USA, to learn more about their work and how we can get involved in support of their incredible mission. Thanks for joining us. Well, Julia McPherson, thank you so much for coming on a podcast today. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, So we're sitting down because we are rapidly approaching World Refugee Day, which is an annual celebration, uh, awareness raising around uh, refugee crises around the world. Uh, You work at... Jesuit Relief Service, USA, uh, here in D.C. And uh, I'm just curious, I guess, at first, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into this work, uh, working serving refugee communities.
1: Yep, thanks again for having me. I'm happy to share more about, about JRS, who we are and what we do. I've been with JRS for about four years now, and I came to JRS from um, a larger international NGO, which is non-governmental organization working in international development and humanitarian assistance. So it's always been something that I've been um, really passionate about and um, and really feel privileged in having the opportunity to work on these issues. Um, the organization I was working for prior to coming to JRS was a secular organization, and I was doing primarily policy and advocacy and what we call citizen advocacy, so citizen engagement on issues related to global poverty primarily, trying to get folks here in the U.S. involved and active in communicating primarily with their Members of Congress about these these global issues. So it's always been something that I've I've really just um, been been involved with and, and care deeply about. The transition to JRS was fantastic in that I'm now able to also sort of live my faith through my day to day work. Um, just being raised uh, Catholic and having gone. To Catholic schools, I am not Jesuit educated. Um, the Augustinians uh, were were um, were my teachers, but it was really fantastic to be able to to make that transition and to sort of look at these issues um, from the perspective of a faith-based organization. So, um, so now at JRS, I'm focused primarily on or um, still carrying forward this work on policy and advocacy, and what we call our outreach program is that citizen advocacy. That that I mentioned, um, trying to really reach out to Jesuit institutions primarily about JRS's work and um, and what's happening with refugees around the world, and then the other hat I wear, which is um, a little less interesting but really critical in terms of our day-to-day work, is um, is being the director of operations. So working really closely with our executive director on just institutional processes and operations, make sure that making sure that our Organization is running smoothly um, and that you know everything is happening the way it should
0: be So talk a little bit about JRS it's a history uh, from at least some numbers. I've seen it looks like JRS works with about one out of every 100 refugees around the world Which is like this massive number. I don't know if that's That's current but obviously a huge amount of work going on all over the world So just yeah, tell me a little bit about where the organization comes from and what it does.
1: JRS was founded by uh, Father Arube back in 1980. So he was the superior general of the Jesuits at that point and um, a superstar in a lot of ways, you know, in Jesuit circles. Folks know um, Father Arube for so many reasons, but um, he really um, took this issue to heart. At that time in 1980, it was sort of in the midst of the Vietnamese boat people crisis. And he was um, really struck by what was happening and felt compelled to, to take action. And I, I actually just recently saw um, a quote from him. I, I brought it with me. This is actually from a letter that the, the current um, um, superior general put out just about a month ago about JRS and its role in, um, in the Society of Jesus. And he quoted Father Arupe um, saying that, In terms of the situation of refugees throughout the world, he Arupe said that this constituted a challenge to the society we cannot ignore if we are to remain faithful to St. Ignatius's criteria for our apostolic work. So he really saw it as being fundamental, you know, to the work of the society. Um, and, and I think JRS's operations started really small, mostly in Asia Pacific. But today we're operating in about 50 different countries um, in Latin America, in um, sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, Europe. Um, and and still in in Asia Pacific and we're serving about 700,000 refugees every year so globally unfortunately there are about 68 million displaced persons of those about 25 million or so are, um refugees um so of those refugees yep we're serving almost a million so um so the work that we're doing is certainly critical
0: sure so even using some of the those terms you use i think it'd be great to just make sure that we have clarity on those so you talked about displaced persons and refugees and here in the states we hear about immigration and migrant crisis and asylum seekers could you like just tease out a little bit what those differences are and and who specifically JRS works with?
1: Right. No, it's a question we get all the time. And it's it's definitely confusing. Um, uh, we especially when we're talking to groups about um, these issues and about JRS's work, there's, you know, it's it's easy to get confused. There are a lot of a lot of different words and um, various terminologies sort are of thrown about. And sometimes they're they're used incorrectly, too. So we typically talk about or use the term forcibly displaced as um, to note an individual who's had to leave their home for um for some sort of reason typically forced from their homes um, due to some form of violence or persecution um, but it also um, could include um, there's basically three different categories of forcibly displaced persons so one are refugees and there's a legal definition for refugees so you have to have been forced from your home due to um, persecution violence um, human rights abuses um, there's a there's a very specific legal defin- definition that the UN um, devised that um, the UN and other partner organizations and governments subscribe to in terms of providing that official designation of a refugee and once you receive that de- designation then you're afforded certain kinds of um, services depending on where you are um, then the the second category is um, Is a asylum seeker, and those are individuals who have um, left their home, but they haven't achieved that um, that that designation of refugee yet. They're sort of in the process um, of becoming a refugee. Then there's a, a, a separate category. So you mentioned migrants and immigrants. I mean, those can kind of be um, collapsed to mean the same thing. Um, typically, we make the distinction, or the, the best distinction is that a migrant or an immigrant, the likelihood um, is that they are, have not been sort of forcibly displaced, so that the, the word forcible, um, that there was some element of choice involved in whether or not they had to. They left their home. Now, there's a lot of gray area there. Um, there's a lot of sort of controversy or you know conversation around that. You know, you could I think make an argument that um, someone who is facing severe economic challenges um, due to maybe um, uh, conflict or lack of governance or climate change, you know, and they they. Personally, feel like they have no choice but to leave their home to to go and search for some kind of income for their family. You can make the argument that they're forcibly displaced, but when you when you look at that legal definition of a refugee, that's where we have to kind of consistently go back to that um, and make the case. And that's really what happens on a day to day basis when there are, you know people arrive even at our borders and are seeking asylum. Um, then are interviewed by U.S. government, you know, representatives, that those are the kinds of questions that people are asked. And so those distinctions, you know, are attempted to be made on a daily basis. Um, So I would sort of say migrant and immigrant, you sort of fall into that category. Another category I would mention that a lot of people don't talk about is internally displaced, sort of a final category where... Um, these are oftentimes individuals that um, could be looked at as refugees, but they have not crossed a border. So they haven't actually left their country. Um, they're still in their own country, but they've had to maybe leave their their hometown or their city or their state, depending on where they are, um, because they've been forced out due to maybe a violence or civil war or some kind of conflict going on within the um, within their, their communities. So there's, um, there's a large number of internally displaced people around the world as well.
0: So JRSUSA is part of this global network. What are some of the things that you focus on here in the States?
1: So here in the U.S., we are um, based here in Washington, D.C., and the primary focus of our work is twofold. One is to support JRS's global work. So because we're here in the U.S., you know, we have access to um, policymakers who make decisions that impact um, programs all over and people all over the world. So our advocacy work is, is focused here in Washington on primarily what's happening um, overseas and how the US government engages in foreign policy as it relates to refugees. And then we also do a fair amount of fundraising, both from private donors, but then also from the US government. So for example, we currently have a series of grants from the State Department that fund our overseas programs. So that's sort of one element of the work that we do here in the US. But we do have one domestic program, and it's actually a fairly long-standing program. We've had it for, I think, about over 20 years. Um, It's funded by the Department of Homeland Security, and it's a chaplaincy, or sort of pastoral care program, where we place a chaplain in five different um, federal detention centers. And they are tasked with providing religious services to detainees. And these are, talking about the definitions, primarily migrants, you know, who have either recently arrived in the U.S. or are on their, have been... um, are in the process of being deported. Perhaps they're sort of in these holding um, holding areas, attention centers. But um, but there's an opportunity for them to at least receive some kind of um, accommodation in terms of access to religious services or pastoral care. So we have we have this program. We have a Jesuit who runs the program, Father Richard Totello, based out of. El Paso, um, and the centers are in four different states: in Arizona, Texas, Florida, and upstate New York.
0: Hmm. I I'm just fascinated by your your background as uh, an advocacy person. Uh, this you know the sense of bringing uh, the stories from around the world, the, the concerns of those people, uh, Catholic teaching, the Catholic community, the Jesuit community up to Capitol Hill, these places of great power, uh, and. Uh, places where you know there's a lot of cynicism these days uh, at least like in the states about how well that's all working how well our political system is working Uh, and to sit there and to kind of bring that message um do you have any like any stories of of when that's actually gone well i'm like looking for any kind of hope around that system times in which you've sat down with lawmakers policy folks and kind of laid out some stories in the work of, of jrs and and all of a sudden, hey, like some good stuff happened.
1: Absolutely. I actually have more stories, better stories now than from when I worked for my, my prior employer, the sort of secular organization. Because you'll go into an office sometimes and maybe expect very little, um, just given perhaps a policymaker's position on some of these issues. But the staff person will be an alum of a Jesuit um, university, this happened to me, we went into an office um, asking them to co-sponsor a piece of legislation on increasing access to education for refugees, which is a big part of what JRS does in terms of our overseas work, and um, we thought we'd get a no, pretty quick no, but um, the staff person, I believe, was an alumni of Spring Hill, and working um, in this congressional office on Capitol Hill, and they were... They were really excited about the fact that we were there, and they actually ended up co-sponsoring the bill. Um, I've also brought with me sometimes a couple of you know, Jesuits up to the hill. I brought Father Kevin White, who used to be our uh, country director in Uganda, um, and most recently transitioned to become JRS's uh, representative in Geneva. And and he loved the experience and the, the offices that we met with loved meeting him as well. So it was also sort of a Jesuit Catholic connection that I didn't know would be there necessarily. We actually try to do that research ahead of time to find out if the member is an alum um, or is is Catholic, but you don't have that information about the staff staffers. So that's always, you know, a surprise if if that comes up. So I've really been pleasantly surprised that um, we've been able to get a lot of traction. And then I'll add that um, the administration and Congress, they also really place a special emphasis on wanting to hear from faith-based organizations. So there have also been other opportunities that we've been exposed to where we've been sought after in terms of, you know, hey, we're, we're trying to formulate some policy around Venezuelan migrants and refugees, for example, and we want to gather a group of faith-based organizations to get their take on this. And so we've been invited to to those conversations where we may not be included um, if we were a different kind of organization. So it's actually been pretty great.
0: I imagine when you're in some of those conversations, even more important than like statistics are stories, stories from the countries where people are fleeing, stories from the ground, uh, JRS experiences. Are there any stories for you that you've learned about the work of JRS that really kind of move your heart and ones that you won't forget?
1: Absolutely, I've had the privilege really of being able to travel to visit some of JRS's programs. Um, about once a year I have that opportunity and and there's sort of a, a, a very tangible kind of goal for, for those trips. When I do a trip, what we try to do is come back and we typically write up a publication that we can use um, for all of our work here in the U.S. I can take it up to Capitol Hill. I can take it to a donor to try to really, um, in a concise way, talk about what JRS is doing and how, and the impact that it's having and then um, use it as a sort of an advocacy tool. So I've had the opportunity to, to really meet some tremendous people, both the individuals that we're sort of working with in our programs, but then also staff that um, are implementing the programs that have been, I think, um, just as sort of wonderful. So I was just in Uganda about um 5 months ago and Uganda's the largest refugee hosting country in Africa. They have a really interesting sort of history where Uganda, you know, used to be embroiled in its own um, civil conflict and produced a lot of refugees. Um, but now it's relatively you know, peaceful in Uganda. And they have, in turn, welcomed a huge number of refugees within their borders. So um, so in Kampala, the capital, there are refugees from all over Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and then in the northern part of the country it borders South Sudan, it's primarily South Sudanese. And they have really progressive policies in terms of giving access to um, education, to work, to sort of plots of land, so refugees are able to at least you know, have some opportunity um, while they find themselves in that situation. So I, I was talking primarily with young girls when I was there. We were doing a paper on access to education for girls, um, refugee girls, And they just face, you know, sort of um, uh, challenges that are are unique to to being a girl, whether it's families that, you know, they have limited resources, clearly. So if they have to choose between sending their son to school or their their daughter to school, oftentimes they'll think it's more beneficial to send their son um, or girls who are married off at an early age and just don't have the opportunity to go to school. So we had some really interesting conversations. One in particular that stood out was... um, conversation i had with three girls who had been or were in this what we call accelerated education program meaning they had dropped out of school for um, a variety of reasons Um, and now after being out of school for a few years are trying to get back into school and um, two of them had children Um, one had been married but then um, her husband had left her Um, one was actually a ugandan two were south sudanese Um, But this was a great example of trying to work with the situation, you know, that not every situation is ideal, but everyone has or should have the opportunity to sort of achieve their goals and their dreams. And their stories were, were really, you know, difficult to hear. They definitely got emotional in telling their story about how they, how, what they had to get, go through to find themselves where they were, but Um, But it's great to know that we can offer a service that gives them this sort of hope and this opportunity when it's really hard um, being in their shoes and feeling oftentimes that you've been forgotten. The world really isn't paying attention to who you are.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the big challenges we see here, Uh, you know, in the States is like just such a big misconception about who refugees are, if we're thinking about, you know, those folks at all. Um, Sometimes it seems like that's such a these are such huge problems around the world. Like, what can we do? So it's easier to kind of to tune out or even to even more painfully sometimes to have just really terrible misconceptions about who refugees are and, and the, imagine that there's some sort of threat to us in our way of life. Uh, so what are some of the, those things you, you see and some of those misconceptions and, and what do you think like the, on the flip side, the reality is uh, in situations for refugees around the world?
1: It's really a shame that refugees have kind of been uh, mixed up in this, this rhetoric, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't really understand it at all um, because it, it's just untrue. I mean, refugees are individuals who, if, if they had any control over their lives, would w- want to stay in their homes, in their communities, in their countries. They have no interest in leaving, but um, when you hear these stories of what refugees have had to go through to leave everything they know behind, and literally oftentimes, you know, drag their kids and their families and themselves across borders and start a new life in a foreign land. I mean, any of us, if we had to put ourselves in their shoes, I don't know if any of us can imagine what that's like. So, so to try to, um, to alienate them even further or to characterize them mm-hmm. in a way that is... is is. Um, sort of defamatory. I mean, I just don't understand it. I think it's they just become scapegoats, unfortunately. And the reality is that, like I said, refugees really um, are I've, I arguably, I think, the most vulnerable people in the world, where they've lost everything. They oftentimes, you know, I mentioned Uganda that that does give some of these opportunities and these services, but in a lot of countries, they don't have those rights. We just actually had a colleague from our office in Indonesia here in our office yesterday, and he was telling us that you know the Indonesian government government gives refugees access to nothing. They have no access to work, to education, to housing. Um, so imagine, you know, what are you supposed to do? How do you survive if you can't work or or send your kids to school? Um, so. The barriers they face are really insurmountable in so many places. So it, it, it's painful to see even a country like the U. S. that historically has been so welcoming to all kinds of people, to turn our backs on refugees. You know, in particular, um, people who really need our our help and need the help of others as well, um, who are living some of the you know darkest days of their lives. So yeah.
0: It seems to me that like, at least one of the responses in trying to increase public awareness and compassion around issues refugees face is World Refugee Day, you know, the sense of a chance for people to come together and to celebrate and, and learn. And so I'm just curious about JRS's plans for, for celebrating World Refugee Day this year. What are ways then you go about kind of uh, counteracting that narrative that has scapegoated refugees in, in too many cases?
1: So World Refugee Day really presents us with that opportunity so it's every year on June 20th um, there's so many different days that are recognized throughout the year. I know it's hard to keep up but this is a really important one for us and for other organizations working in this area um, what we try to do every year is highlight one particular sort of element or issue that we think is important to sort of raise awareness around um, to try to get folks to sort of focus on this as an opportunity to mobilize um, around these issues and maybe support our work as well. So this year we're running a campaign that we call um, With My Own Two Hands and the idea is that it focuses on the um, the sort of um, the, the inner spirit and capability that each refugee has. You know we shouldn't look at refugees as as, um, as just um, individuals who can't or won't um, help themselves. You know, I mentioned all the vulnerabilities that they face, but at the end of the day, what they need is sort of just um, an opportunity to, to support themselves and to, um, to find sort of a future for themselves. And so what we are trying to focus in on through this campaign is, you know, what are some of the talents and um, and the treasures you know that refugees really hold within themselves that only if, if given you know a small amount of support they can really blossom with. So, um, so part of that are the livelihoods programs that we run. So, I mentioned earlier we do a lot of education programming. No surprise, being a Jesuit institution, so we do sort of formal education, um, pre-primary and secondary. But we also run a series of. Um, of livelihoods programs that offer refugees an opportunity to gain a skill um, or hone a skill they might already have that's linked to a real opportunity to earn an income wherever they might be. Um, so they may not be able to, to have the career or the or uh, utilize the skill that they had in their home country but we tried to identify opportunities for them based on sort of like the local community and the local market what they might be able to do in their host community that then could help them earn a little bit of money um so really trying to look at yeah what are what are some real tangible things that we can be doing um given that most refugees at this day and age aren't able to return home. It's just not safe for them to go home. Um, Countries, again, like the US, aren't taking in as many refugees as we used to. So the burden, unfortunately, is really on these host communities, sort of the border countries where refugees first go to, who are hosting the majority of refugees around the world. So what can we do to help support those countries and the refugees who are in those host communities? so all that to say that we're, we have more information about the campaign on our website. You know, Anyone listening, feel free to check it out. Um, we're putting stories about these sorts of livelihoods programs on our website so you can learn a little bit more about what we're doing. If um, you're here in Washington, D.C., we're hosting an event on the evening of June 20th where we're screening a documentary that a partner of ours um, has produced. on. Uh, it's actually about a, a refugee soccer team. It's called... Um, not just football, it's a, a, a team of Darfuri refugees from Sudan who live in Chad now. Um, and, and how they have sort of utilized their skill um, of being soccer players to uh, raise awareness about their community. So, um, so if you're in DC, we're doing the screening, but we're also encouraging folks around the country to host screenings um, in their own communities.
0: That's awesome. So those are just a couple of the, the ways to, for folks to connect with you all around World Refugee Day celebration. But what, what are other ways throughout the year that people, whether they're with, you know formally connected with Jesuit institutions or not, can help support JRS's mission?
1: Absolutely. We have an outreach program that I mentioned earlier where during the year we offer a variety of ways to kind of stay involved. Um, we have a few different resources that will help guide individuals or groups who are interested in supporting JRS. Um, one is a guide on how to start in what we call a JRS action team. So it's basically it's kind of like a, a club that you can have on a school campus, at a parish, just a community group. Um, we, are, we have a, a few um, action teams across the U.S. now, and we're making a big push to encourage more for the new school year. Um, we have another tool that's called our Walk a Mile in My Shoes Refugee Simulation, and we've had a huge number of groups, um, both you know Jesuit, um, secular, Jewish, you know all kinds of organizations that have really um, supported this effort. And it's sort of like a, a it's a walk through simulation that gives you a sense of what it might be like to be a refugee that you can do um, in your own community. So we have a toolkit that kind of provides a step by step guide on how to do that. And then throughout the year, we have opportunities to communicate with your members of Congress. We send out action alerts about quarterly um, on a particular issue or piece of legislation that impacts the lives of refugees. So we try to um, spread the word about those. You know, the, the the more um, emails and calls that we can get into congressional offices, the more action that will be, ta- will be taken from the US government. They want to hear from their constituents about these issues. Um, so those are just a few ways that any Anyone can stay involved throughout the year. And certainly check out our website, um, sign up for our emails and our newsletter, and you can hear about other opportunities to get involved.
0: Yeah, I love the the connection to, to advocacy, especially in faith communities, to you know, raise our voices on, on behalf of refugees and other people living on the margins, and often best when we can speak with those people and those communities and bring those stories uh, to, to places of power. I think in a, a lot of Catholic circles, There's, I don't know, so either hesitation or just lack of knowledge about advocacy as this thing that, you know, we can be involved in as a way of working for justice, you know, that sometimes, you know, as people of faith, like we go to like a soup kitchen or to like a Habitat and like we put on like jeans and T-shirts and like go swing a hammer. And there are other days that like we put on like suits and like the best that we have, and we go out to these like very fancy office buildings and and have conversations with lawmakers and their their staffs and uh, and both of those are like part of right. our faith and responding to uh, the call to build God's kingdom.
1: That's right. I think both are equally as important. I mean, even as an organization, we see advocacy as you know going hand in hand in terms of our programmatic work. So we're out, you know, in the field working directly with individuals and serving their needs. Um, but we also acknowledge that making changes on a larger scale, these, these, um, these policy decisions that will have implications far beyond what we're able to achieve through our programming. So it's similar um, to how I think we here in the U.S. can play a role in these issues. Certainly, the direct service is critical, especially in giving someone a sense of that bringing the issue sort of to a human level and getting to know someone and once you see it with your own eyes or experience it or have that conversation and that will change you forever so that's critical and at the same time understanding that we also each have a role in in really voicing these concerns um and bringing these concerns to um, a higher level i know that parking might be intimidating for some folks who maybe have never had that experience but we try to make it um, accessible. I have one other opportunity, in addition to responding to these action alerts I mentioned, we do host an annual advocacy day here in DC as well, so um, we are growing it each year. We had about 60 people participate um, this past April, it's every April, and we um, we work with uh, participants to sort of train them on some of the talking points and take them up to Capitol Hill, and it's a hugely inspiring Um, experience both I think for the participants and then for the offices that we meet with
0: sure so again we talked a little bit about like how this work is challenging in this environment you're not only kind of working on refugee issues but also within the American political system the church there's all kinds of you know challenging intersections there like what keeps you going what gives you hope in the midst of all of that
1: it's really the 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 people that that we're serving. I think. I mean, I, I the the annual trip you know that I'm able to make really is inspiring and and also acknowledging that these are issues that aren't um, that aren't sort of sidelined issues. I mean, we're hearing about refugees in the news and and. Um, it's something that clearly is of concern and getting some attention. I mean, for better or worse, I think ideally, you know, we, we don't want to see these numbers go up, but the numbers are going up every year, and conflicts and crises aren't subsiding. You know, that's the unfortunate piece where where um, these continue to be challenges. Um, but at least we are able to see that there's a role for JRS to play, and it's a critical role that. The work that we're doing um, is necessary and is really tackling one of our more significant global issues.
0: Well, Julia, thanks so much for jumping on and uh, hope you have a wonderful World Refugee Day celebration. And thanks again for all your good work.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me.